Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Eastern family. Thanks for tuning us in. From 1927 until Eastern's last flight in 1991, the men and women have lived the history of our great airline. We are presenting these memories and stories with our radio show, Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. We can't even imagine how, in the early days, the pilots flew open cockpit mail planes in all types of weather with very little or no navigational equipment except light beacons, landmarks, and other visual cues to reach their destinations. Many of the early pioneers even lost their lives to get the mail through. Some were even heroes to people along the mail route from New York to Miami by spotting fires of homes and businesses, then turning their mail planes to the affected property, circling and alerting those on the ground about the impending danger. This was a type of concern Eastern people displayed over the years. We read a story of June 
a couple of episodes ago, and the same concern led June Hatton to pay for an airline ticket for a soldier returning home to be with his family. He could not afford the cost, so she paid for the flight. It's typical of the Eastern employee. I remember receiving medical help when I first was hired by Eastern and still on probation at six months with the company. Eastern paid all of my wife's hospital bills when she had a stroke and gave me the time off that I needed. This was the company we worked for, ladies and gentlemen. I'm more convinced than ever, looking back at those wonderful years we had with Eastern, that the legend will live on long after we are gone. With the memories we share every Monday evening and stories yet to be written, Eastern will not be forgotten, even by our descendants. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. So stick around to the end of this broadcast, and we'll tell you how to go about getting it on the air. Now, Linda and Harry, let's tell the story of Eastern as told by its people. Several years ago, our radio show producer, Captain Neil Holland, did an extensive interview with another legendary Eastern captain. It was Captain Hassan Calloway. Neil titles this article, A Chat with Captain Hassan Calloway. Flying is always the same old story, but some aviators tell it better than others do. In telling an aviation story, it should be just true enough to be interesting, but not true enough to be tiresome. While at the Sun and Fun Air Show this past year, 2001, a few Eastern pilots gathered around like young aviation neophytes during our student pilot days, listening to every word that came forth from our instructor's mouth. This day, our instructor was none other than master storyteller himself, Captain Hassan Halloway. The stories that Hassan tells are stranger than both truth and fiction, but Hassan leaves little doubt that the latter is surely the case. It is said that there are three sides to every story, his, yours, and the truth. Hassan's stories are in a category all their own, and I have no doubt that he lived all of them. You may have heard a few of these, if you have been around Hassan long enough, but even so, you'll enjoy them again. And here's a couple of those stories. This is titled, On the Lighter Side with Hassan. Hassan says, I was flying the L-1011 out of Seattle to Omaha. It was a cold winter night, and the doors would always freeze, especially in Omaha when it was about 20 below. It seems you would always have a tailwind out there. Nothing was going on, and things were pretty quiet, as we must have been the only airplane in the air between the Mississippi River and the West Coast that time of night. I called Omaha Tower about 100 miles out and asked what was going on. They asked what time I was going to be there, as they would put on a fresh pot of coffee when I got in. We were on a first-name basis, so I went up to talk with them as we had about 45 minutes before departure. There was an old Boeing 720 sitting on the ramp in front of the terminal. It had been an aircraft used by one of the flying clubs, like the old Skylarks out of Atlanta. The club had gone broke, and a nudist colony bought the airplane. The controller said, You should have been here the other day. They had all the models out around the plane looking at it. It sure was a sight. A couple of flights later, I was flying south when the controller called and said, Hey, you remember that 720 parked on the ramp the other day? Can you fly 720? I said, Well, I guess so. 
Well, they're looking for a pilot, but there's one stipulation in getting a job. You have to fly just like they do, without wearing any clothes. I said, there's no way I would do that. I'd have to have shoes on because my feet get cold on the rudders. I wasn't about to fly nude. Speaking of flying nude, I've got, I've got to tell you this one. We barnstormed the Stinson Trimotor all over the country, and one of the last hurrahs was at Quincy, Illinois. They were having the world-class parachute jumping contest with 5,000 jumps a day. I don't mean a week or a month. I mean 5,000 a day. The Stinson was there about 10 days. The guy before me ran over a manhole cover and into the hangar and tipped the wing, so I only got to make two or three flights. The people there weren't interested in going up anyway and coming back. They wanted to go up and jump. They had every airplane you could imagine. On one end of the spectrum was a guy with a pits who would take a jumper in the front cockpit, go up, turn it over, and let him go. That was $65. They had DC-3s, Martins, King Airs, Cessna Caravans, and they would go up to about 13000 and jump, jump all day long. They started around 11 o'clock in the morning. They would get all donkeyed up during the night. You would see signs all around town. Skate naked, shop naked, fly naked. On one of the last days, they had a B-727-200 stretch fly out from Miami with no seats in it. It had 180 tie-downs on the floor. They could only drop 90 at a time due to the speed of the airplane over the airport. We were watching all the activity going on when some gals came up and said, You're not going to believe what we saw up there on that 727 today. They're loading it up with naked parachute jumpers. I went over to where they were loading the 727, and sure enough, all they had on was a parachute and a smile. I've got pictures to prove it. They had an overcast sky that day, and I don't know what the pilot was using, Loran, GPS, or something else. The airport was about 15 miles east of town, and he got mixed up and dropped them over the town. They were landing in shopping centers, parking lots, graveyards, and everywhere else you could think of. Can you imagine when they unbuckled and tried to get a ride back to the airport? They had the stairway and door of the 727 removed, and they piled out of there like rats out of a burning barn. Another thing that happened was funny to us, but not to the guy it happened to. They had these big circus tents, kind of like the ones here at Sun and Fun. They would always jump in pairs. A guy and a gal would jump together. One couple landed on the peak of the circus tent. She got loose, but he came sliding down to the corner post, holding the tent up. Ouch! They only had four fatalities, which wasn't too bad, considering they were jumping at the rate of 5,000 per day. Then the editor says, You flew a lot of trips out of Seattle and Portland. I was with you on a few of those. Some of those, besides yourself, I really enjoyed flying to the West Coast were Gib Guerin, Bill Malone, C.P. Henry, Johnny Johnson, Russ Moms, to name a few. Hassan says, Russ Moms, I was flying out of Seattle and Russ was coming west from Omaha one night. We were probably the only two airplanes in the area that night. I turned on my lights about 200 miles out and he would turn his on and we could tell we were approaching each other. Russ had the greatest sense of humor and when I was about 50 miles away, I blinked my lights at him and he said, Hark, a light shineth in the east. Is that you, Hassan? I said, yes. He said, I'm going to put in the buildings for some whiskey, women, water, and some fresh horses. He was one of a kind. The same can be said of Captain Hassan Calloway. He's one of a kind. 
Perhaps I may run into Hassan again this spring at the Sun and Fun Air Show in Lakeland. If I'll do, I'll make sure to have my tape recorder for any forgotten story Hassan may wish to tell. For it has been said that a good story is like a love affair. Any fool can start it, but to re- end it requires considerable skill. Hassan does both with considerable skill. Storytelling, that is. Eastern Airlines serves 26 of our 50 United States. But today, we look beyond assigned flight patterns, and we see the miracle that is America. Her names are written on the land, and the peoples who wrote them are diverse as the land itself. Polynesian mariners landed on the shores of this island from their outrigger canoes and called it Hawaii. The Spanish found this stretch of coastline lovely and named it the Jewel, La Jolla. An Indian tribe cut this name with the flint tip of a feathered shaft, Mojave. In the shadows of the Rockies, our conscience named a settlement Fair Play. Scandinavian mythology swept the plateau that rims the Grand Canyon and called it Valhalla. The French embraced the Mississippi with a parish and they called it Baton Rouge. Killing this Pennsylvania farmland, German settlers named it Heidelberg. The English settled Cape Cod and called the county Barnstable. E pluribus unum. One from many. This is the miracle we celebrate today. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. We celebrate not the final achievement, for there is much still to be achieved. We celebrate the promise, the progress, the hope. Christmas in the Air by Alexa Conway One Christmas Eve, we were en route from Miami through Atlanta heading toward Hartford. It was late in the evening, so we were almost empty, everyone else having reached their families. As we started our service, a call button rang. I went to find a young soldier in uniform alone in the window seat toward the rear of the coach cabin. He looked stricken. He was missing his pay envelope. As I began pulling seat cushions, he kept saying, Nobody could have stolen it because it's against U.S. law, and the military would not allow such a theft. I was heartsick to think that this young kid had just been robbed and was too naive to recognize it. He remembered being in the restroom in the Atlanta airport and wondered if he dropped his pay envelope there. By this time, I had thoroughly searched the row behind and in front and under all six seats in the back seat pockets and in the overhead bin, pulling everything out because he had put a bag up there. No envelope. I excused myself to start work. In the galley, I began to explain the situation. The flight attendants were upset at the very thought. This kid was headed to Hartford to surprise his parents before Christmas, before he shipped out to Vietnam. We were due around midnight, and we were heartsick. I went to the cockpit. I told the front crew about our young soldier, and they pulled out their wallets. I went to my purse and added some money. The flight attendants did likewise. Now I was on a roll. I started in first class cabin. 
my flight attendant spread out across the plane, we went to every single passenger. We simply explained the situation and the wallets came out. A few minutes later, I counted the money. We had more than $500. We put the money into an eastern envelope and added a short note and sealed it. I took the envelope to the young soldier. As I explained to him what everyone had done, he was wide-eyed. He asked if I could get all the names so he could mail refunds. He was a jewel. He opened the envelope and he was agog. I had no idea how much he had lost, but I knew how much all of us had gained. When we landed, a man from first class deplaned but stood in the jetway. As the young soldier got off the airplane, the man stepped out and extended his hand and began talking to the soldier. As we passed them in the terminal, the soldier was waiting with the gentleman. Our passenger was giving the soldier a ride home. Christmas was alive and well in Hartford that night. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient. It's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Now let's continue with part two of how Captain Eddie purchased Eastern Airline. In part one, we learned that Captain Eddie was trying to raise $3.5 million to purchase Eastern from uh, GM. This trio spent three weeks investigating Eastern, Rickenbacker's methods of running an airline, EL's future prospects, and every other aspect pertaining to a $3.5 million investment. They came back to Captain Eddie with a verdict. Kuhn, Loeb, and company would advance the cash for Rickenbacker's purchase of EAL. The plan was to set up a new corporation with Captain Eddie as president and raise enough money by public subscription to repay Kuhn, Loeb, and company. Rickenbacker's joy was tempered considerably by the realization that time was running out. His option agreement with General Motors would expire at 6 p.m. Sunday, April the 22nd. The preceding Thursday, he met with GM and North American directors in the General Motors building at 57th and Broadway, accompanied by his attorneys and financial backers. The marathon session lasted all day, with the Hertz versus Rickenbacker arguments batted back and forth in a verbal ping-pong game. The big stumbling block was the diminutive but powerful figure of Ernest Breach, who fought openly for John Hertz. Rickenbacker angrily attacked Breach for your outright favoritism toward Hertz, and Breach was just, just as angrily retorted that he had a perfect right to speak his mind. When the meeting adjourned for supper with no decision reached, Captain Eddie went to a phone and called Bill Knutson, GM's president. Breach has no business taking sides, he complained, and even if he did, our bid is better than the Hertz offer, and Ernie knows it. Go back to your meeting, Eddie, Knutson said, Gently, I'll ask Mr. Breach to refrain from participating. When Knudsen said to Breach will never be known, but Knudsen obviously reminded him that his loyalty had to be toward GM and not John Hertz. When the negotiations resumed, Breach remained silent, and shortly after 3 a.m., the Rickenbacker offer of $3.5 million cash was accepted. It was now, of course, Friday morning, and Rickenbacker still wasn't home free. He didn't have the cash on hand yet, 
and he told Chef and Warburg he didn't know where they were going to get $3.5 million on a weekend. The option expires at 6 Sunday evening, he worried. We'll do our damnedest, Eddie, Warburg assured him. All day Saturday and through most of Saturday night, Rickenbacker waited in vain to hear from them. At 11 p.m., he panicked and phoned Alfred Sloan. I know it's late, but I could, could I come over and see you for 15 minutes? Sloan said yes, and less than an hour later, Rickenbacker was at Sloan's residence unloading his concern. I don't think Warburg and Schiff are going to have the money by Sunday night. Would you give us a 10-day extension? Sloan, still in his pajamas, merely smiled. Eddie said, if I were you, I'd stop worrying. Rickenbacker went home and spent a restless night. Sloan's advice not to worry sounded reassuring, but he hadn't granted any 10-day extension either. Early Sunday morning, Warburg called. Where do you want me to deliver your $3.5 million, he asked calmly. How about 10 o'clock tomorrow morning at the Eastern Hangar in Newark, Freddie, if it's convenient? I'll be there, Warburg promised. Rickenbacker then phoned Sloan again to inform him that he would be at his office before noon on Monday with a certified check. I know it's past the 6 o'clock deadline today, he added, but Fred Warburg assured me he had the money. Monday will be fine, Sloan said. Just stop worrying. Twenty-four hours later, Rickenbacker handed Alfred Sloan a certified check for $3.5 million. Sloan put the check down on his desk and held out his hand. Congratulations, Eddie, and God bless you. I wish you every success in the world. Under Rickenbacker's agreement with his backers, the new corporation, Eastern Airlines Incorporated, was to have a half million dollars in working capital. In addition, Captain Eddie was given an option on 10% of the capital stock. Some 400,000 shares would be sold to the public at $10 a share. The latter was to present some problems because the day the stock went on sale, Germany invaded Austria and the subscription was only half sold. Rickenbacker himself would have to go on a stock selling tour to raise the rest of the money. But this was a mere foothill compared to the mountain he had just climbed. As of April 22, 1938, Edward Vernon Rickenbacker, Rickenbacker became president of Eastern Airlines for better or for worse, and there was to be a lot of both. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Here's a little short story from a 1977 issue of the Repartee magazine from the Retired Eastern Pilots Association uh, from the section called Nostalgia Corner. Pat McCarthy, one of Delta's early pilots, was not a pretty man. He had a long nose that hung out of his forehead like the last banana on a stalk. His eyes gave the appearance that he was peering through two skin keyholes. His forehead was retreating and his hairline was in fast pursuit. He was bow-legged, somewhat stooped, and his arms hung down nearly to his knees. One of his fellow pilots accused him of being ugly enough to hump bears with a switch. His voice was high-pitched and came out through his nose in a manner which made him sound like a semi-hair lip. Pat was also quite stubborn and set in his ways. After some years with Delta, they and Pat parted company 
and he became the personal pilot for Mr. Letourneau, the famous manufacturer of heavy grading equipment and a noted evangelist. Pat was pretty conservative when it came to flying in bad weather, while his employer was eager to go, regardless of the elements. Once in Dallas, as they were preparing to head out for Atlanta, Pat checked the weather and then informed his boss that they would have to wait until the next day because the weather was too bad. Don't worry about the weather, Mr. McCarthy, said Mr. Letourneau. The good Lord will take care of us. Pat's pale blue eyes seemed to take on a paler hue as he mulled over the remarks of his employer. No, we ain't going, decided Pat with an air of finality. How do I know the good Lord has an instrument rating? worship the sun. Today, in Acapulco, what was once a primitive religion has become a fine art. Acapulco. Prices are now so low, you can vacation in Acapulco this year for the same kind of money you spent on last year's vacation. Call Eastern or your travel agent. See how easy it is to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly. Over the years, Eastern Airlines pioneered a lot of new systems, a lot of new uh, procedures in the airline industry. We've heard about many of them on our radio broadcast before. But did you know that Eastern established the first passenger security system? This is a story that comes from The Wings of Man, uh, uh, written by James Ashlock. It's entitled, Eastern Lays Foundation for Airport Security. Eastern Airlines established the U.S. airline industry's first passenger security system, regretfully setting the stage for the highly intrusive screening program in use today. Ironically, those at Eastern who planned and activated that first system warned that it might grow to such magnitude as to inconvenience passengers and become irreversible. In 1969, Eastern was the preferred airline for every homesick Cuban, extortionist, rebellious radical, and criminal on the run who saw Castro's Island, 90 miles south of Key West, as an ideal haven. Hijackers knew that flight crews were instructed to simply extend their approaches into Miami and dump the skyjacker in Cuba rather than risk onboard confrontations. Incidents became so frequent that communications and technical coordination between Eastern system control and authorities in Cuba were almost routine. Ultimately, something had to be done. It was expensive to divert into Havana as Cuba tended to boost landing, fuel, and handling costs. The risk to passengers and crews couldn't be ignored. An agent in Houston was gunned down fatally by a father-son bank robbing team that stormed a flight as it prepared to depart. One first officer was killed and the captain seriously wounded by a gunman on a flight into Boston. Skyjacking had become a major peril. Acting on its own, Eastern took the initiative. Captain Mike Fanello, head of system control, assembled a team, the Federal Aviation Administration was consulted, 
and planning began for a deterrent system. What resulted was a procedure with three basic ingredients. A behavioral profile to identify suspicious individuals or selectees, a magnetometer to disclose metal common weapons, and a federal marshal to conduct searches and arrests. Eastern counter and departure personnel were briefed on identifying the selectees. It was also necessary to gain clearance by the U.S. Justice Department to implement the program. After all, was merely buying an airline ticket sufficient cause to detain and search someone as a criminal suspect? The government ruled that Eastern system did not overly violate citizens' rights and was sufficiently selective to identify suspects. For example, not every passenger was required to pass through the magnetometer, only selectees. And a bodily search by a U.S. Marshal was a last resort if the magnetometer sounded off. A fourth ingredient of the Eastern system was an openness with the news media. It was decided that prospective hijackers should know Eastern was waiting for them. Naturally, the details of the behavioral profile were kept secret, but the presence of the magnetometers and the U.S. Marshals were clearly evident. Eastern even publicized the system on national television. One of our flight attendant supervisors, Denise Vickery, appeared on the Merv Griffin late night show in her hot pants, a popular fashion at the time, passing through the magnetometer to illustrate how even small weapons could be concealed in such a tire. Amazingly, the frequency of hijackings on Eastern plunged overnight. Terminal personnel found knives and guns and floral planters and luggage storage units discarded by travelers fearful of detection. But Eastern success created problems elsewhere. Hijackers merely switched airlines. Even local service carriers, such as Allegheny and Southern, were hit, as were other major airlines. The FAA was pressured to do something about it, and it decided all air airlines had to adopt Eastern's program. That set off the chain reaction that ultimately led to the procedures in place today. Prophetically, in 1969, Eastern expressed anxiety over the genie he had released from the bottle. Mike Fanello was invited to address a nationally prominent law school after the anti-hijack program was initiated among all U.S. airlines. We are hung up right now with a procedure which would be very difficult to halt or replace with a less obtrusive but more effective means of screening passengers and luggage, Fanello said. With our old procedures, we could have quietly and discreetly phased out the security measures if it were eventually deemed that skyjacking was no longer a menace. We could have taken these steps without announcing to the world that we were lowering the screen. But now, we have thrown up a highly visible, awkward checkpoint which, when it's gone, will seem to announce to every sick mind in the country that it is once again open season on the airlines and their passengers, Fanello added. There was no way in 1969 that Fanello could have foreseen the rise of international terrorism or the impact of political influence. Eastern's identifying of select selectees could be forbidden today is illegal profiling, nor could he have envisioned the long lines of travelers shedding shoes, emptying pockets, and standing while strangers dig through their luggage, pat their bodies, and confiscate anything deemed a weapon. Carl T. Rowan, a nationally syndicated columnist, praised Fanello's speech as a courageous illustration of how events and public political anxiety were impacting on constitutional rights. But then our world was different, and despite the reservations expressed by Fanello and Rowan, 
the evolution of that simple 1969 procedure designed by Eastern into the intrusive Homeland Security program today was most likely inevitable. This story was written by James R. Ashlock, who was an Eastern staff VP. He worked for Eastern for more than 25 years. Passengers have flown Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. Let's reminisce a little bit from the book, The Wings of Many, in an article by Hank Foley. Pilots everywhere love to exchange stories and jokes about their jobs. We have all done our share and still do in our magazine, Repartee. For a change, I would like to recall some ideas I have come across in reading and listening to non-airline people. I've been saddened to observe that the fascination that people used to have for airplanes seems to have disappeared from among the traveling public. I suppose there is no mystery about it. So much discomfort is involved that most people are glad when it's over. We completely forget the miracle of flight. The jetway is my biggest letdown. It protects us from the wind and rain, but the passenger never gets to see the airplane. Remember in years past, walking from the gatehouse and across the ramp, looking up at a beautiful constellation with those magnificent wings far above your head, the mighty engines and props, and those three tail fans, balancing the delicate curved sweep of the fuselage. In a novel by Robin White, Angle of Attack, there is a dedication that reads, Some people maintain that the romance of flight is dead, that flying is nothing more than a crowded bus with bad meals, shrinking seats, and lost baggage. But they are wrong. The dream is alive because all flight is miraculous. The kid at the airport fence knows it. The student pilot rode down the runway solo understands. So does the man who painstakingly built his own airplane, watching the earth fall away for the very first time. The instrument pilot knows it as he plays a game of electronic pinball in the clouds, betting his life on his skill. Eastern Airlines presents... A flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Why don't we listen to the Buddy Batzel story? Buddy started out as a uh, aerobatic uh, wing walker, pilot, skydiver, all types of exotic uh, 
things related to aviation, but ended up as an Eastern captain. This is from the uh, Annals of the Repartee Magazine, the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. Our story starts on January 10, 1911, when Joseph R. Batzel was born. As a boy growing up in Pennsylvania, he became interested in boxing and became a professional at the age of 15. It was at this time that he became known as Buddy, a name that would follow him for his lifetime. After Buddy hung up the boxing gloves, he drove a candy truck for a time, diligently saving his money with a goal in mind. He wanted the exciting, adventurous career of a parachute jumper. In time, he bought two parachutes and an old Essex touring car to carry himself and his gear from airshow to airshow. He teamed up with another jumper named Buddy Bomar, and the two of them toured airports throughout southwestern U.S., making quite a name for themselves. Buddy's performance was always a hit because he gave the crowd the thrills and chills they came to see. He had two spectacular acts, one he called his cutaway, in which he wore two chutes. One of them was rigged with a device of his own design, which, when activated, would cut away from Buddy and flow gently to the ground. The crowd, of course, looked in on horror at Buddy's rapidly falling body. However, using his extraordinary coordination of mind and muscle, this doomed man would open the second chute at just the right time and altitude, to hit his pre-selected spot in front of the grandstand. Buddy's other spectacular act was billed as a free fall of some 10,000 feet before opening his chute. To this jump, he added some innovations such as emptying a 25-pound sack of flour to blaze his trail on the long descent. He wore a brilliant orange jumpsuit so the crowd could follow his two-mile path through the sky. Here again, the spectators were in awe of this daring young man who opened his chute with just enough altitude to break his long fall and again hit his pre-selected spot in front of the crowd. Once I asked Buddy if he ever missed his spot, he looked at me with this boy's grin of his and related this story. He was making a jump in a small Ohio town and an unexpected wind shift blew him off his target. He landed in a nearby churchyard where an outdoor wedding was taking place. The unexpected guest from the sky was welcomed, and he joined in the festivities, drinking a toast to the happy couple and kissing the bride. Then he went on his merry way with his parachute flung over his shoulder. Buddy's reputation as a jumper grew fast, impressing the Switlick Parachute Company who hired him to perform using their equipment on an international tour. The Switlick Parachute was known for its safety records and quick opening features. Buddy's act demonstrated these features remarkably and dramatically. During this tour in 1932, a most unfortunate accident occurred at an air show in Athens, Greece. Buddy was scheduled to jump from the observer's seat of a huge Greek Air Force biplane, a Baru MX, which had a wingspan of nearly 50 feet. The pilot was a high-ranking officer in the Greek Air Force who evidently became preoccupied with something happening on the ground and was unaware that the nose of this huge biplane was rising even higher and higher. It finally stalled and fell to the ground with such force that the aircraft was completely destroyed. The pilot was killed and Buddy was sent to the hospital with serious injuries. This ended Buddy's big tour big time. When he was well enough to travel, he and his bed boarded an ocean liner for the trip home, traveling in style in his bed in the sick bay of an ocean liner home at last. Six months later, Buddy was, has recuperated and is looking for a job. 
He joined the Ford and Brown Air Show Group, and it was here that he met a man who would in time become like a father to him. This man was Harold Johnson, widely known as the pilot who had did ground-scraping aerobatics in his small six-ton Ford trimotor. Harold also, also had two small acrobatic planes, which he used in this act. They were built by Laird and called the Continental Comet and Speedwing Jr. Harold taught Buddy how to fly so that he could ferry these planes from show to show. He didn't care much for the Comet because, as he said, it was real nervous on the ground after landing. He fell in love with the other and lovingly called it the Laird. Buddy's last air show performance was in 1939 at the Greensboro High Point Airport. Buddy had another unusual airborne occupation. He was a skyrider and had a Waco taper wing especially equipped for this type of aerial advertising. High above many of our cities, you may have seen him riding Squirt, a soft drink in mile-high, mile-long letters. As the war in Europe escalated, many flight training schools were opening in the U.S., training both foreign and U.S. pilots. Many of the schools were located in Florida, where year-round training was possible. The prospects of being drafted into the walking army led many pilots to become flight instructors and or airline pilots. Air shows were out of season now, so Buddy thought he would try his hand at instructing. He flew the Laird down to North Florida and tried out for an instructor's job. He said that he had two big problems here. One, he had never given the first minute of instruction, and two, he had never flown a Stearman PT before. Here those natural BATSO instincts prevailed. He passed his check ride and was immediately given a job as a flight instructor. On his way back north, Buddy planned to remain overnight in Atlanta. While there, he learned from friends that Eastern Airlines was hiring pilots to be based in Atlanta. The next day, he went to see Captain Larry Pabst, chief pilot in Atlanta, and was hired. That ended all thoughts of becoming a flight instructor, so he sent his regrets to the flight school. December 7, 1941 was a day that changed a lot of plans for a lot of people. The airlines were participating in the U.S. military airlift under the Air Transport Command. In early 1942, Eastern formed its military transport division with its main base in Miami. There was a mass exodus of pilots from all bases to the Miami base. Buddy was in this group. On April 14, 1945, Eastern and Delta had a merger when Buddy married the lovely and talented Ann Leonard, a former model and stewardess with Delta. This had to be a match made in heaven, as Buddy and Ann were absolutely devoted to each other. Ann opened a remodeling school in downtown Miami, but gave it up to care for their three children. Buddy retired from Eastern on January 10, 1971, after a 31-year career as pilot and captain. In July of that year, he suffered a stroke so severe that he lost much of his muscle control and used a cane for walking the rest of his life. With Ann's care and devotion and Buddy's strong-willed spirit, he handled this adversity with dignity. In their later years, one of their favorite pastimes was bird-watching at Pelican Harbor, where they spent many happy hours together. Ann passed away in January of 1988, and son John just six months later. Adversity was no stranger to Buddy, but he always had a smile and a handout to greet you, even when it took some doing to get it there. After Ann passed away, and for as long as he could, and often as he could, Buddy would go down to Pelican Harbor. He said he was going down to see the birds and talk with Annie. Buddy passed away on June 24, 1993. 
He was a man of many talents and accomplishments. To quote the church bulletin at his funeral service, he was a devoted husband and a loving father. Also, if I may, I would like to add, dear friend. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York, Eastern's Transcon. Why don't we go back and take a look at one of Eastern's most uh, famous assets. It was the Eastern Airlines Air Shuttle. I'm going to read an article from Wikipedia about the shuttle and also a couple of vignettes from the book From the Captain to the Colonel by Robert J. Serling. Eastern Airlines Shuttle, or Eastern Air Shuttle, was a brand name of Eastern's Air Shuttle that began on April 30, 1961. The shuttle originally flew between New York City, Boston, Washington, and Newark. The shuttle became part of the fabric of business and government travel in the Northeast Corridor. No reservations were needed. Passengers showed up at the terminal, and if a plane was full, another was rolled out. The shuttle slogan was, Imagine Life Without Us. It was sold in 1988, and in its present incarnation is known as the American Airlines Shuttle. And just a side note on that, Americans uh, really came up with the original idea for the shuttle back in the uh, 1940s under C.R. Smith. American never launched the shuttle at that time because they couldn't figure out how to do it and make money. But on April 30, 1961, Eastern inaugurated the Eastern Airlines shuttle, initially 95 or 96 seat Lockheed 1049 Super Constellations left New York LaGuardia every two hours from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. to Washington National and to Boston. On August 1st, LaGuardia Boston became hourly, 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. out of each city. LaGuardia DCA followed in the next month or two. Fare in May of 1961 was $10.95 to Boston, $12.75 to Washington. Rail coach to Washington was $9.68. Passengers could pay in cash after boarding, so the fare soon dropped a few cents to $12 and $14, including the 10% federal tax. Reservations were not needed, seat assignments were not given, and initially no check-in was required and no boarding passes were issued. But Eastern guaranteed everyone a seat. If the flight filled up, another aircraft was ready to go. On Sunday after Thanksgiving 1961, the, two, the 10 p.m. flights between LaGuardia and Boston carried 623 passengers on seven aircraft. The Sunday following Thanksgiving was always the shuttle's busiest day. On 1 December 1968, the shuttle carried 21,760 passengers on 94 first section flights and 197 extra sections. The shuttle peaked in 1963 when weekdays saw hourly super constellations 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. each way, LaGuardia Boston and LaGuardia DC, hourly DC 7Bs 730 to 1030 each way, Newark to Boston, super constellations every two hours 730 to 930 each way, Newark to DCA, 
in five flights each way DCA to Boston. In 1966, the New York Times reported that the shuttle was carrying 86% of the Washington, New York area air traffic and 76% of the traffic to Boston. It said the shuttle lost several million dollars a year until about two years ago. Electras took over the first sections, LaGuardia, Boston, LaGuardia, DCA, in September, October 1965. The last Constellation shuttle flights were in 1968. Electras became backups to 727s in 1966, then to DC-9s in 1967. In later years, New York Air, a subsidiary of Frank Lorenzo's Texas Air Corp, started a competing shuttle service in 1980s with DC-9s. Lorenzo acquired Eastern in 1986 and had to sell New York's air shuttle service to Pan Am World Airways to get Department of Justice antitrust clearance. By 1986, the two shuttles were in intense competition. Pan Am had a market share of around 45% and touted its full-service product in comparison to Eastern's no-frills products. In 1987, Lorenzo unsuccessfully tried to sell the Eastern Shuttle to his own Texas Air, apparently for the purpose of transferring cash out of Eastern in the form of advisory fees. Eastern's labor unions challenged the sale in federal court and won a judgment requiring union bargaining in connection with the sale. By then, the Shuttle was one of the few profitable operations under the Eastern brand. In October 1988, the shuttle's ground rights and 17 aircraft were sold to Donald Trump to form the Trump Shuttle with the first flight in June 1989. Just a year later, the company was in financial default and surrendered to become Shuttle Inc., which U.S. Air entered into an agreement to operate in 1992, then bought in 1997. The shuttle service began as U.S. Air Shuttle, which is presently known as the American Airlines Shuttle. Pan Am's competing shuttle service was bought by Delta in 1991 and became the Delta Shuttle. And from the book, in a pressure cooker that has generated as many as 72 extra sections per day, the air shuttle's safety record has been impressive. In the first 19 years of its existence, with nearly 60 million passengers flown, there has been only one fatal accident, a mid-air collision between a TWA 707 and an Eastern Constellation operation as a Newark-Boston shuttle, flight December the 5th, 1965. The Eastern captain, Charles White, crash-landed the Connie on a hillside after the impact severed his controls, a miraculous job of airmanship in which White maneuvered solely with his throttles. A single passenger died, along with White himself, who re-entered the burning plane in a vain effort to save him. We've also told that story of Captain White and that mid-air collision on this uh, Eastern radio program. Equally impressive is the shuttle's on-time performance, among the best in the industry, consistently running between 92 and 94 percent. In a corridor's combat zone, such on-time performance is close to a miracle. It is achieved by the simple process of dispatching first sections as soon as they are filled usually 20 minutes ahead of scheduled departure. The second section usually leaves the gate right on schedule and the policy is dispatched the final section no later than 20 minutes after scheduled departure. The shuttle also rates high grades in baggage handling, a constant industry headache but almost foolproof in the air shuttle operation. 
When it first started, there was a long and loud debate over where to put the usual claim checks on luggage. McIntyre, the eastern president at the time, argued against it, insisting that passengers could simply leave their bags in a special pre-boarding area and claim it in a similar area at destination. It's still done that way, and the air shuttle has the fewest complaints and the lowest lost bag percentage in the industry. One of the few bags reported lost belonged to an eastern vice president who was raising hell until someone discovered he had left it in the men's room at National Airport. Naturally, the shuttle is plagued by the usual delays applicable to any carrier, but on one occasion fell victim to Eastern's admirable practice of dispatching each flight as soon as it's loaded, a procedure which comes close to being perpetual motion. It was a busy Friday afternoon, and the shuttle boardings at LaGuardia that day looked like an assembly line. Pull up, full up, pull, fill up, and pull out. One extra section was completely full. The stewardesses had welcomed everyone aboard. The captain PA's, cabin PA safety message had been delivered, and the plane just sat there. After ten minutes of waiting, the senior flight attendant went up to the cockpit to inquire about the delay. She got the answer quickly. Nobody was in the cockpit. They'd run out of standby crews. Then there's the ultimate air shuttle story, generated by the debacle of the 1968 air traffic controller slowdown that almost brought the U.S. air transportation system to a halt. At the height of the snarled mess, a passenger boarded a shuttle flight in Washington shortly before 5 p.m., landed in New York less than 50 minutes later, and was so impressed that he lagged behind to praise the duplaning pilot. Captain, he said pleasantly, I just want to compliment you and Eastern. I was expecting all kinds of inconvenience. I figured the 5 o'clock shuttle would be lucky to land at Guardia by 8, yet here I am, and it's only a few minutes after 6. Thanks, the captain said dryly, but you were on the 2 o'clock shuttle. On November 1, 1977, Eastern retired the last of its electrics, probably the shuttle's best all-around airplane, and went all-jet with the DC-9 as the primary aircraft and Boeing 727-100s as backup. On more than one occasion, an Electra beat a DC-9 to destination by as much as 30 minutes, even though it was operating as an extra section. The prop jet's ability to operate more efficiently at lower altitudes made the difference, but the Electra's maintenance cost had soared to the point where its versatility was no longer a major factor. It was costing Eastern $8,000 to replace a propeller that had only cost $2,700 when the plane was brand new. Prop overhaul alone for Eastern's last three Electras required a 10-man shop crew in Miami, and some replacement parts were being built to order for an aircraft that was averaging only two hours daily utilization. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Memories of a great airline have reached the end of our broadcast tonight. We hope you enjoyed the stories as told by the Eastern family and read by Linda and Harry Lindquist and me, Neil Holland. 
The stories will continue with next week's broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. If you have memories you would like presented on the air, we hope you will send them to us so they can be read and heard by the Eastern family. You can even record them on your computer's voice recorder and send them to us, and we'll include them on a future show. Send via email to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's E-Neal, N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. It must be in an MP3 or a WAV file to work with our broadcast. These are the formats that most computers use. Also, we hope you will tell your friends about these broadcasts, and if you miss one, you can always go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, and select from the episode's archive. Our Eastern theme music tells us it's about time to say goodnight, Eastern family. From Linda, Harry, and me, we'll see you at the gate next week. Good night, Eastern family. <laughs>